Ready? Oh, yeah. We can do it. Okay, good. Arms closed. Hand. Associated with the word hand. Work, throw, worship. Your hands made me inform me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort, according to your promise to your servant. Let your commission, compassion, come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wrong, wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless towards your decrees that I may not be put to shame. Put to shame. All right. Okay. Um, oh, last week I said something. I, I got it wrong. I was obviously asleep when I said it because I know this, but uh, James is the 59th, not the 54th book of the Bible. And I think... Uh, for some reason, I said the 54th, and so I want to straighten that out first thing. And I want to thank Karen for that because she emailed me right away and said, you know, you, you, you got that wrong, buddy. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, I, I mentioned this on Sunday. I want to mention it again just in case different people watch online. But uh, the lady that we help in the Philippines that uh, I, I quite often make an appeal for, uh, just for you know whatever her ministry needs are for the month but um, she did a great video on um, uh, the rice program that people have helped with and uh, she went out into the uh, villages and uh, uh, you know gave some of the rice and it was very well done so if anybody wants to see that email me and I'll send you a copy of her video and um, Remy. what's that Remy, Remy yes uh, and then uh, Paul Knee. Uh, they're in Australia. He's having bouts of erratic blood pressure, and he's asking for prayer on that. And uh, very nice family. He and his wife and daughter are just very nice people. And uh, uh, just I hope that that'll get behind him because uh, uh, just stressful when you got problems like that. But um, and then uh, Mike, who is in uh, where are you, Mike? I want to say North Carolina, and I could be wrong on that, but he. Uh, I mentioned him on Sunday. He had a hernia problem, and he went in at 1.30 today to have that checked. I have no idea how he's doing, but we want to keep him in prayer. We'll find out, I'm sure, in the morning. Um, and I got one last prayer request. Hunter, who is 14, <clears throat> had surgery last May to lift his sternum and chest off of his heart. Um, it's called uh, pectus exavatum, and where his sternum concaves inward. I've seen people with that before. The, the surgeon placed three metal bars under his stern, sternum and ribs to lift it up, giving his heart more room. Uh, now on the 21st of this month, he will have major back surgery. He's going to be getting two rods placed on each of his spine from L4 to T2. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like a lot of pins in his spine. Along with the rods, they will also do a bone graft fusing those vertebrae together. Um, I think it's because of scoliosis, but that's not on here. I think it was on the other email she sent. Anyway, um, so keep Hunter, who's uh, 14 in prayer. That'll be on Tuesday that he'll have surgery. So uh, got a couple prayer requests, and we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray for these people and these needs, and we uh, thank you. Oh, Tom Alley as well had his uh, um, chemotherapy a couple days ago, and so he's struggling through the effects of that. We want to lift him up as well. Uh, praying for these people and asking that your hand will be with them and on them. 
And uh, Lord, we're just thankful that you're always here with us, even when we do go through times of trouble and we may not understand why they come, but you do. And you know that they're refining us and molding us. And according to your wisdom, we even pray that you would take them away from us. But we leave that in your hands, knowing that your choice is always the wisest. And Lord, uh, we just pray for the class that it would be handled properly and your word would be glorified, which tells us of Jesus. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity that we can uh, have to meet here and to uh, share in this precious word. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so we have um, uh, 16, did you say 16th today? November yeah, yeah. 16th, okay. The Legacy on Sunday, November 16th of 1572, Robert Fairley of Edinburgh didn't go home after church. The reformer John Knox lay dying nearby, and he went to see him. Fairley sat at a table near Knox's bed, both men sharing food and fellowship. Fairley, longing to be the last to see the great reformer alive, followed Knox's illness. Sensing the end, he visited again on Thursday. Waiting until everyone else had left the room, he crept beside the dying man. Knox looked over and whispered, I have been greatly indebted to you. I shall never be able to recompense you, but I commit you to one who is able to do it, to eternal life. Fairley never forgot those words. He told his children. They told theirs. The story passed from generation to generation until young Marion Fairley was told your great-grandfather was committed in prayer to the eternal God by his servant John Knox. Moved by that legacy and by her father's preaching, Marion gave herself to Christ. Marion grew up to marry godly William Beach. One night soldiers burst in carrying William to prison for his gospel preaching. All the time the officers were in the house, Marion later wrote, the Lord supported me so that I was not in the least discouraged before them. Presently, <clears throat> news arrived that William was to be hanged. Marion rode horseback through a blinding January snowstorm to Morfette Jail, arriving at midnight. At daybreak, she was given a few, <coughs> excuse me, a few moments with her husband. Then I went to a friend's house and wet my fill. That day, persecutor Thomas Bell announced, Vich will hang tomorrow as he deserves. But that evening, prosecutor Bell tarried at a friend's house, drinking and talking until past 10. The night was dark and cold when he left for home. He never arrived. Two days later, his body was found in the river, frozen up to his arms in solid ice. William Vitch was released. Then he and Marion lived to a ripe old age, passing their godly heritage onto their children and grandchildren. These are things we learn from our ancestors and we tell them to the next generation. We won't keep secret the glorious deeds and the mighty miracles of the Lord, it says in Psalm 78. <clears throat> okay, so we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and if we get started right now, we may be able to finish the book of 2 Thessalonians today. We'll Anything's see. possible. Okay, so I'm going to back up to um, verse 13, beginning of the paragraph. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. 14. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very close. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's see here. <clears throat> Look carefully 
at the progression of thought Paul has said in the previous verse and this one. Oh, just so you guys know, because you haven't been in a Bible study before, um, these are notes from my Bible commentary I've done on the New Testament. And so I read them and then just throw in whatever thoughts come up or, you know, somebody has a question or something. But these are my notes. So I'm not like reading a study book or something. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, Paul, look carefully at the progression of thought that Paul has said in the previous verse and one in this. Uh, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel. He uses a neutive relative, neuter relative pronoun translated as which in the New King James Version as the preceding nouns, salvation, sanctification, and belief are either feminine or masculine, he's not referring to any of these individually, but rather to all of them together. As Charles Ellicott notes, it is the general state of life which is compounded of these three notions, to which thing he called you. He then notes that the election or choice takes place in eternity. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which you started with. The call is at that point of time when the men first hear the gospel, and that's noted in Romans 8.30. Let me take you to Romans 8.30. <clears throat> and, uh, boy, I've got something in my throat all of a sudden, which wasn't there until we started. So that figures. Um, Romans 8.30 says... I'll start in 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among, among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So <clears throat> everything is done in God's mind. Uh, that right there all by itself is a hint of eternal security. If you... Uh, follow through Paul's writings, he always speaks of eternal security in Christ. God is foreknown. He has predestined us unto salvation, and people argue what predestination means. I mean, they can say that predestination means that God chose you before the world began. You had no choice in it, which is what Calvin teaches. Uh, he saves you. You are born again, and after you're born again, you uh, believe and then you are saved. So it's salvation by God, but it goes through a process, which the Bible doesn't teach that at all. Uh, God allows us free will. So when he says he predestined you before the world began, it means that he acknowledged that when you call on Jesus, that you would be saved. You would be sanctified, you would be justified, and you would stand before God glorified someday. It's all a done deal in God's mind. Um, I've done many times on the board, and we'll do it again uh, maybe sometime during Thessal 2 Thessalonians, is um, the example of the ducks going down the river and how you know at what point you are saved based on whatever theology somebody is espousing, whether it's Calvinism, and if, you know, it, it could be hyper-Calvinism, -Cal it could be moderate Calvinism, it could be Wesleyanism, or it could be you know, traditional uh, belief into salvation, which means that you're saved forever. And so all of those different views are laid out there, and then you just have to look at them and decide, which one do I believe the Bible is telling me? And obviously there is only one that is correct, but you know people will argue it, and they will come up with their own set of verses to argue their uh, point. But if you follow logically the nature of God, 
you have the Bible. It tells you what the process of salvation is. You, if you understand the nature of God, that his decrees are eternal. He doesn't make a decree unless it's an eternal decree. Then you know it's eternal salvation. He will not decree something that is contrary to his nature. He will never decree wickedness, okay? Wickedness from our perspective may occur, but that doesn't mean that it's wicked from God's perspective. He has ordained that certain things happen within a stream of time that we may not like, and we will say, well, that's wicked or that's evil. Um, perfect example of that is when, what's his name, um, Joseph was sold off by his brothers, and he specifically says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so we can say, well, that's a wicked act that happened. And God would say, I disagree because a greater good has come about. And all of this stems from the nature of God. He will never do anything that is contrary to his nature. So if you understand his nature, which is what we talk about many times, but especially in the early Genesis sermons, uh, you'll understand what God is doing and how he does it. It's revealed in the Old Testament as well as in the New. But um, we'll read this process again. God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, which he called you by our gospel. And you could say, well, that means that God predestined us, which means that he made the action on our behalf without any choice in us. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, Paul's word. So there's belief involved. Belief is not something that is forced um, to which he called you. And then he says, finally, by our gospel. Well, the gospel says what? We'll go there very quickly just to take a look at it. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, and it's always good to read it right out of the Bible, even though you might have it memorized. But it says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to scriptures. Okay, so that's that's the gospel, and then Paul says in Ephesians 1, what happens when you believe the gospel, and he never says when God makes you believe. He says when you believe. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he says, um, in him you also trusted after you heard the words of truth. So something is presented to you, you accept the premise, and you trust, you believe, okay? Uh, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, that was your action, God presented you the gospel, having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It makes no sense for uh, somebody to say that God saves you and then gives you the Spirit if he saved you before you were saved. Why don't he just give you the Spirit all along? But, you know, anyway, it, it, it all kind of comes down to semantics at times, and you got to be careful with that because people can be very good at semantics. But if you take the Bible as it's written, the gospel is presented. You hear the gospel and you either reject it or you accept it. When you accept it, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that is an eternal decree of God. His nature would not say otherwise. And that's why we have an Israel today. There's an Israel today because God's decrees are eternal. When he said, I will covenant with you and I will always keep you as a people, he will always keep them as a people. Even if people disagree with that, it doesn't matter. You know, I, I spend so much time during the day lately thinking of people that, and I'm talking about people in churches, that dismiss the fact that Israel has a purpose in the world. And they just it, it, it's just an aberration that has nothing to do with what's going on in the world when that's the key thing going on in the world right now, is that God has brought them back into his, into his land that he has given to them to fulfill the promises of the ages. 
And to arbitrarily just say, well, those Old Testament promises no longer matter when they're key to everything that he is doing in the world right now, it's like they just, they want to do this. They just want to cover up their eyes and not look at what's going on in the world around them. But whatever. Um, uh, so th that's what's going on. Romans 8.30 and uh, uh, Ephesians 1.13 and 14. It tells you the process of what's going on. Uh, and then continuing on, this wonderful insight, which is confirmed in the tense of this relative pronoun. Relative pronoun, it wasn't any individual thing. It's the whole process, which is very similar to where it says you were saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. If you look at how it's structured, he's not the gift of God is not the... You were saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. Okay, the gift of God is not the saved by grace, and it's not the faith, because it wouldn't match just like this. Rather, this is the whole process. You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The entire process is what Paul is speaking of. Everything. It's all a gift of God. So we can't say, well, I earned... What's the, yeah, not, not by works at all. Your faith is a gift of God. The works... Thank you. That's part of it. I think I left that out. But anyway, uh, you were saved by grace through faith and that not of works. It is the gift of God and yeah, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the entire process is what Paul is speaking about, the whole thing. And the same thing is happening right here. Um, so this wonderful insight, which is confirmed in the tense of this relative pronoun, clearly shows that the, here it is, Calvinist view on predestination is wrong. Though God chose in eternity past, which I would never deny because that's what the Bible says, the process is also clearly based on a presentation of the gospel in the present of the believer. You have to give the gospel. Somebody in Africa that never hears the gospel is never going to be saved. God's not just going to pump it into his head and say, okay, I'm saving you. You've been uh, reborn and now you want to believe what you've never heard and now you're going to be saved. That's not the case, and even Calvinists know that's wrong because they send out missionaries. missionaries. There would be no point at all in evangelizing any person on the planet or sending out one missionary anywhere on the planet if the view that they espouse was actually true. Because if God's will cannot be thwarted, then whoever God chose before the creation of the world would be saved. But it doesn't work that way. We are required to send out missionaries. Jesus told us to go forth and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The whole process would make no sense if God just chose you for salvation. Okay, he's born, he's saved, deal done. It doesn't work that way. So the Calvinist idea on predestination is not correct. Though God chose in eternity past, the process is based on a presentation of the gospel in the present of the believer. God calls each by the gospel. If no gospel presentation is given, salvation will not occur. And, you know, I had somebody today, he emailed me and he said, um, I have a friend that I uh, was in school with and he died. And, uh, you know, he had heard the gospel from me in the past and and uh, he rejected it and he went up turning gay and he, you know, went got into drugs and all kinds of other things. And he said, I drove by his place recently and I thought I should stop in and see him and, you know, just talk to him. And that chance is over now. He died. And so, uh, you know, we just have to remember that if we are not going to speak, 
we may be the only one that ever does to that person. And if we're not willing to help people overseas that are actually going out into little villages that have never heard anything about Jesus and tell those people about Jesus, they are not going to be saved. That's the reality of the call of the gospel is that people have to get up on their feet and they have to go. And if they go to a restaurant, they should hand out a tract or speak to them or whatever mode you want to do. But um, that is how people are saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it doesn't come any other way. I know that people will say that and that's fine. I don't, you know, I don't argue with people that say that, you know, God showed up in somebody's head and, and told them you need to be saved and it's all done deal. I don't argue with them, but I do not believe them. And I've heard that many, many, many times in my life. But uh, I think that people, uh, uh, most of the people that say that are the very people that go overseas as missionaries and they say, we need to be here so that we can tell people about Jesus. And they come back and they say, well, I heard a story from another village that somebody had a dream and accepted Jesus without ever hearing the gospel. That's not what Paul says. And it would be counter-effective to their missionary, and it would be counter-effective to what God has ordained for the people of the world to do, is to get out and work. So I just, I don't see it, you know. I, if people believe that, that's fine. I just do not personally. Um, I believe we have a responsibility, and it's based on what the Word of God alone. Um, Paul shows that God calls us to salvation, sanctification, and belief by the gospel and then his words for the obtaining of the glory of our lord jesus christ everything comes back to what he has given us in his word it comes back to our job based on what is given in that word to tell people and that is paul's words for the obtaining of the glory of our lord jesus christ so if paul said this in the word and this is my logic when it comes to charismatic churches this is my logic when it comes to giving out the gospel and so forth if God has said it in his word, and this word we claim as Christians is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It's written out through men of God uh, by the Holy Spirit, okay? People were carried along, it says, and they wrote this down. If this is the Spirit-inspired book that it claims to be, then the Spirit will never, if you know the nature of God and how he operates, he will never violate what he has already said. And when he says that this is how the gospel is transmitted, and then he goes, goes and has another method of transmitting the gospel, then that is not the God of the Bible, or the Bible is wrong. It's one of the two, but the nature of God will never allow himself to do something contrary to what his word says. And so, just logically, you can say, we need to know this book, and we need to tell people what the contents of this book are. So... Um, it's really that important. And so I, this is what I spend my time on all day, every day, is to get this into the minds of people that they need to read the Word. Read it, read it, listen to it. And you know, your audio Bible. I, I, you can't wear out a CD, can you? It's not yes. like it. You can? Yes. CDs will wear out? I didn't. The player or the CD itself? No, the CD will eventually. It takes a number of, of Oh, well, then I'm going to wear that out eventually because that thing's been playing in my car now for the Bible. That's all I play in right. my car, and that's been playing for... Yeah, but you, there's like 64 discs, so you're never going to... Oh, okay, well, that's what I'm asking. It'll last my life then? Easily. Okay, good. Easily. But I don't care as long as it lasts my life because I don't want it... I don't... You know, if I know that that thing is going to wear out, 
I'd have a spare in the car so that as soon as that one, I'd throw it away and put the spare because I don't want to be without the Word of God. Anyway, um, let's see here. So uh, uh, Paul calls us to salvation, sanctification, and belief by the gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are actually several different possibilities as to how this final clause, the one that I just read you, is translated. One, for the purpose of an acquisition of glory to Jesus Christ for the purpose of an acquisition of glory to Jesus Christ. This seems to indicate that the gospel, that yes, the gospel was given in order for Jesus to accumulate glory. It is true that Jesus indicates that he is glorified in his disciples in John 17, 10, but this doesn't appear to be Paul's intent as he writes. The second option, for a glorious possession of Jesus Christ. This would show that the intent of our salvation and sanctification is so that we would become subjects of Christ in his kingdom. Now, it is true that this will occur. Christ is our head and we are his people. But once again, this doesn't seem to be what Paul is thinking of. Third option, to be possessors or sharers in the glory of Jesus Christ. This appears to be what is on Paul's mind. I say that without going on any further right now is that he says it elsewhere, that we are brought into the kingdom of God to be to share in the glory of Christ. And Jesus says it himself. Um, he relates this idea to the saints at several times in several distinct ways. For example, in Romans 8:17, he says that we will be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Paul is an apostle who is, at this time, telling his readers what lies ahead for them because of the process that they have gone through and continue through. I would go with the third option, but the other two are possible translations of those words. So just so you know. But I would say, uh, based on Paul's other writings and even Jesus, uh, what he has said, uh, especially in the Gospel of John, to be possessors or sharers in the glory of Jesus Christ. All right, so we will possess the glory of Jesus Christ in our nature. That's what being glorified is. And um, John in his epistle says, uh, when we see him, we will be like him. Exactly. So uh, and in our being glorified, God is glorified. So I would agree with that, but you have all the options, at least of the translations that I've read. Those are the three uh, main translations of those final words. Life application. God has a plan. It is a plan which was in his mind before he created anything. Now, we know that because in Revelation, I think it's 13, 8, it says, Behold the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. So the plan has been there all along. From the very foundation of the earth, he knew that he was going to send his son to the cross, which means that he knew that Adam was going to fall. He knew that sin would infect every person from Adam. As Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. He knew these things, and yet he created knowing these things. And so obviously God has a good plan for all of the evil things that are going on in the world right now. For his redeemed, we will look back and we will see the absolute wisdom of what God has done. And we can, we can be certain of that even in a world full of trouble, even in a world where, you know, a lady's preaching husband is sentenced to death for preaching and God 
gave them grace. And the guy that was supposed to have him executed the next day died on the way home after drinking too much. So uh, good things happen in a bad world. Bad things happen in the world, which is good because it's God's world. So, you know, I like to always show a distinction because what God created is good and the world is filled with beauty. It's filled with so much marvel and so much wonder. And you look at the animals and the things they can do and the wisdom of a spider web and you look at, you know, love between people and and all the wonderful things. And then you've got a world that is absolutely terrible and that's the world that man has made of it. So, you know, you got, um, if you think about it, the, uh, the names, Babel is confusion, right? the land of confusion. And you think of Jerusalem, which means foundation of peace. So you've got these two different things going on in the Bible. You've got the land of confusion, then you've got the foundation of peace. And God is keeping the foundation of peace within the world, despite the confusion that's going on. And eventually we will live in the true Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, where there is peace forever. There will be a perfect, you know, harmony with man and his creator once again. But we're going through troubled times right now. God has a plan which is on his mind before he created on anything. We must understand this and in understanding it, we can be assured that everything is exactly as it should be. That's why I close every week the sermon with that. I want people to be comforted in that because it's something that when you're going out into the world, you don't know what's gonna happen when you put your key in the car and start driving home. Anything could happen. However, we also need to understand that his plan is being worked out in the stream of time. This means the means of salvation is given in his word, a presentation of the gospel message. That message must then be received by the hearer of it. There is no external forcing in this process, but rather it is a free will decision by the believer. Neither Paul nor any other writer in the Bible ever hints that we are regenerated in order to believe, which is exactly what Calvinism teaches. You must be regenerated by God before you can believe, and then you believe, which means you're, you're born again, then you believe, and then you're saved. It's a process that is not taught in the Bible. And if you go back to, for example, Enoch, what does it say about Enoch in Genesis 5? He walked with God. He walked with God and God took him. He was no more because God took him. That's all it says. That's all it says about the guy. It doesn't say that he had to be regenerated in order to believe. It doesn't say anything like that. He was a person that understood God. He understood the nature of God, and he understood the nature of judgment. And he wanted to live his life in conformity with what God expected of him. And so Enoch walked with God, and God he was no more because God took him. That's all it says. And we can see that elsewhere in the Bible as well. Okay, so um, uh, let's see here there. Neither Paul nor any other writer in the Bible ever hints at that. Be sure to open your mouth and speak. People need to hear this word, and they must respond to what they hear. Okay? And some people don't respond, and then five years later, they respond, or eight years later. And, you know, um, I had a, a friend call me last night, and he asked, what do you do when uh, somebody's family member died and they didn't know Jesus? What do you tell them? And I said, that's never an easy thing to do. I said, but the one thing you don't do is lie to them, okay? You don't want to say something that is not true. And, uh, you know, normally I just go back and tell what the Bible says about the state of man. And I say, you know, the Bible says that we're separated from God before we're, uh, we're just, it's our default position. Jesus said it in John three eighteen. 
You know, if you don't believe in the Son, you're condemned already. Paul says that in Romans, what I quoted a while ago, is that death spread to all men because all men sin. We're at, en- we're at you know, enmities. Uh, we're enemies of God. We're at enmity with God because of sin in our life. And that's just our default state, okay? And what we need is to respond to the gospel. And so if somebody didn't respond to the gospel, they're dead already. Th- that's right. They're dead already. Uh, what does it say in uh, 1 John three eighteen? They're Bury the dead. Uh, yeah, let the dead bury the dead. He says that in uh, uh, Matthew, I believe. Yeah. And uh, But John writes in 1 John 3, 18, he says, the reason that the Son of Man was made manifest is to destroy. destroy. That's right, destroy the works of the devil. The devil has his world. That's where we're living in. Uh, you know, the devil even said to Jesus, if you do these things, I'll give you all of this. It's been given to me. It's been delivered to me, and I can do whatever I want with it. And that's a paraphrase, Charlie Garrett paraphrase, but that's what he says. And so uh, uh, Jesus didn't dispute with him and say, that's not true. He knew it was true. The devil has control of the world. And the reason why the Son of Man was made manifest was to destroy the works of the devil. He has reclaimed for God what belongs to God. But God didn't just force it on the world and he didn't force it on the devil. He took the steps necessary so that we would be redeemed never to fall again. And the, the plan is perfect. The process is perfect, what God has done. And we're, we're living it out right now, and we will someday be glorified, and we won't have to think about any of these things ever again. But don't lie to people. You know, you don't have to. One thing I would not do, and it's just not nice, it's not intelligent, and it doesn't help anything, is to say, oh, they're in hell right now. You know, I, I, no, well, actually, they're not. Yeah, I was going to say that they're not anyway. So you're not lying um, because nobody's going to hell until they've gone to the great white throne judgment. Okay, right now they're awaiting judgment. But to even say, oh, they're they're done, they're going to hell, th- that doesn't solve anything. You just tell them that this is God's plan. This is what God has offered, and if they accepted that, and we don't know if they did or not, then that's fine. And uh, they say, well, I don't think he ever did. You don't know their life. You don't know what they went through in their life, and they may not have lived for the Lord. A lot of Christians don't live for the Lord, but there's no need to, to uh, throw things back in people's faces. You just tell them the truth and go on. And uh, in the end, God will sort all of this out, every bit of it, no problem. 2.15. Oh, what? John 17:22. John 17:22. Let me give me Talking one. About the glory. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, that I may. Yeah, I know exactly the verse. I'm not going to misquote it though. So and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. That's one of the verses that. Absolutely. So we will share in the glory of God. Yeah. That's that's a much much better. Uh, uh, thought on this particular verse than the first two. They're all possible, but that is uh, the better, that we will share in the glory of Christ. And he specifically said it there and a couple other times. Um, Okay, so 2.15 for you. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the teachings we pass to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Okay, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. So it's kind of uh, passive in this one. Yours is active, whether by word or our epistle. Okay, so um, let's see here. Comments. Uh, The word therefore is 
especially given based on Paul's words back in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. However, he has supported those words with everything else. He said to them then that they should not be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from them. Okay, and that was mostly based on, you know, people going in and saying that the day of Christ did come. And he said, that's not going to happen. And we went through the various options of, or the various things necessary to occur in the uh, proper order that Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. So that's that was what they were doing. They were saying that, you know, people are coming in, they're writing things, and don't be shaken in mind or troubled. And I'm going to explain this very clearly so that you don't come into error in this. In other words, anything you have heard which is not been given you by an apostle or which cannot be confirmed as apostolic in nature is to be rejected outright okay that's what paul is saying if it is not given by an apostle which means it's in the word or apostolic in nature the book of jude is written by a person that was not one of the 12 apostles but it is apostolic in nature it was during the time of the apostles, and it is to be accepted. But anything outside of that, which means that anything out of the word that does not conform with the word is to be rejected outright. After that, he defended this position by re-explaining what he had already explained to them, which was from 1 Thessalonians, they misunderstood. Now let me explain it again. After that, he defended this position by re-explaining that, confirming that what he said was to be taken as authoritative. He already said in 1 Thessalonians that by the word of the Lord, and then he told about the rapture, the sequence of events, and so anything else is to be considered a false message. If it contradicts what Paul openly and clearly and explicitly states, it is to be considered a false message. Um, so uh, one thing, I think I brought this up here before, but I, I it's come across my screen so many times that maybe I just, you know, I go through my head and I talk to myself like I'm talking to people sometimes. I don't know if you do that, but like somebody will say something and you know that's incorrect and you'll like defend it in your mind as if you're talking to somebody. And so if I've already said this, I apologize, but I, I keep seeing these videos come up on YouTube uh, while I'm, you know, I, I turn on the TV to uh, get ready for dinner and there's a couple, I try to pick like three minute videos so it doesn't interfere with anything. And so um, uh, I, one of them that came up recently was when did the doctrine of the rapture get introduced okay and I didn't watch I already know what they're going to say and then another one of them is uh, when did the uh, uh, doctrine of uh, uh, the church I'm sorry uh, Israel uh, being brought back to the land when did that um, uh, suddenly become scriptural in other words they're taking these issues and they're saying there was a time when this didn't exist, and then it did exist. And here we're going to tell you why their doctrine is wrong. It's because it didn't exist before this day. Everybody see that? So one of the things, we'll just go with the rapture. You got four or five different things, and they keep coming up. I never watch them, and they want me to watch them. So I'll click on it, and somebody will get their whatever. But I, I don't even want to see it because I've seen it 10 million times and, and heard it, read it in studies and stuff. But um, the standard answer that you will hear about the doctrine of the rapture is that that was first introduced when or by who? Thessalonians. No, these are people that are arguing that the rapture is a late doctrine. 
They're going to say somebody yeah, that was in like the 1800s. Yeah, okay. That, yeah, they're going to say that it was John Darby who initiated the doctrine of the rapture. And John Darby came in about the 1800s. We'll say in the early 1800s. And there was no doctrine of the rapture before that. John Darby was the beginning of that, the uh, Plymouth Brethren and uh, so on and so forth. This is what they say. Okay, and you go back before there, and there's nothing really written about the rapture. So they say John Darby introduced this, and it's a late teaching. It is unscriptural because it's late. First, that is a fallacy known as a genetic fallacy. This is new, and therefore it can't be true. Okay, um, the people that are saying these things are all Calvinists, of all of them. What's the problem with the Calvinists saying that? <sighs> The problem is that Calvinism did not exist before John Calvin. So only a couple hundred years earlier than John Darby, there was no Calvinism, okay? And if you take that from the whole teaching of the church, which goes back to the time of Jesus, then that is a very small blip from John Calvin to John Darby. So Darby, so that is right there, fallacious thinking in two different ways. But anytime somebody asks you, when did the doctrine of the rapture come about? And you say, well, I don't remember exactly, or uh, they will say John Darby, and they say, oh, no, I do remember. Paul wrote about the rapture. Just because John Darby is the one that sat down and said, oh, the third one, I said uh, replacement theology, um, you know, the church, and the third one was dispensationalism. They say that's a new doctrine. It never existed before John Darby. He came up with dispensationalism, and then he came up with the doctrine of the rapture to justify dispensationalism or the doctrine of dispensationalism to justify the rapture. One way or another, they'll come up and they'll say these things, and that is untrue. The Bible speaks of dispensations. If you go through the Bible, as we have from Genesis, and you look at what God is doing, he is revealing time in dispensations. Now, people will say, well, the Bible speaks of covenantalism covenants. And that is true. There are covenants in the Bible, but that is not the end of the story. There's a covenant with Adam. There's a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Moses. And there's a covenant with Abraham. And there's a covenant with David. And you got all these different covenants. Covenantalism, I will not argue that that is incorrect, but at the same time, it is not the end of the story. It's a part of what God is doing. He's working in covenants to ensure that what he says will always be believed about those covenants. Because when the people of Israel are suddenly out of the land, and he said that they would always be his people, we can say, then there must be a time when they will be back in the land. Covenantalism would confirm that. But the covenantalists say that doesn't because his covenant supersedes that, and therefore that doesn't matter anymore. But it doesn't work that way. The new covenant does supersede the Old Covenant. That's right in the book of Hebrews. It says it three times explicitly, and it implies it many times. But it will only happen for Israel when Israel comes to Jesus. And then the Old Covenant will be done away with for Israel. The New Covenant is not made with the church. The church did not exist until the New Covenant. The New Covenant was made or was promised in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not with the church, but with Israel. The church, the Gentile church, is grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. 
That's in the book of Ephesians. So we are a part of what God is doing. We are grafted into what God is doing. But what God is doing is taking the covenant from Moses and he is superseding it with the covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood when Israel enters that new covenant. Right now, any Jew on the planet can become a part of the new covenant. We've got some that attend in church, okay? But that does not mean that Israel, who the promises were made to, has entered into that covenant. And until they do, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, stands. Would anybody here disagree? Would anybody here disagree that um, Israel was exiled the second time based on the curses of Deuteronomy 28? Would anybody disagree with that? No, because that's what Deuteronomy 28 says. It says it also in Leviticus 26. If you don't listen the first time, I will multiply your punishments seven times over. So anybody that reads the Bible would say, yes, the curses upon Israel are why they were exiled. If that's true, then they were under the Mosaic Covenant, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're under the curses. And that went on until uh, 832 A.D., and then it went on until 1034 A.D. And then it went on until the Russian pogroms in the 17 and 1800s. At what point does it stop? Are they under an eternal curse? Is that what these replacement theologians are saying? Is Israel is just under a curse forever? Or God is going to be faithful to the covenant he made at Sinai, saying that I will keep them as a people, I will restore them, and I will give them life. He is faithful to his covenants. And when they enter into the new covenant, the old covenant will be superseded for Israel. That's why it says in Hebrews, I think it's 8.13. Let me go there right now. It might be 9.10, uh, 10.9, I'm sorry. But Hebrews 8.13, we'll go there first because that's what comes to mind. Um, here it is, 8.13. In that he says, and he's writing to the Hebrew people. He's not writing to the Gentile church. He's writing to the Hebrew people. In that he says, a new covenant... He has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He's writing to the Hebrew people. The structure of the Bible shows you that Hebrews is written after the church age epistles, showing that someday the new covenant will be obsolete after Israel enters into it, and not until then. It is never in effect for us because we were never under the Mosaic Covenant, ever. It was annulled in any Jewish person that has come to Christ. The Old Covenant is annulled. They are now under the blood of Christ. But the nation of Israel is who the covenant was given to. And until they as a nation receive Jesus, which it says explicitly he will in both Testaments of the Bible, the new covenant will take effect and the old will become obsolete for them. That's what's happening. Um, I, I'm sure I've got more than, uh, as a matter of fact, if you want to see that uh, pretty explicitly stated, go to the last Leviticus 26 sermon. Mm. Okay, I think we did a four, maybe five part series on Leviticus 26. The last Leviticus 26 sermon will clarify that for you. God will never break his covenant promises. If he did that with Israel, he will do it with you, and your salvation is not up to you. It is, I'm sorry, up to him. It is up to you. You must work. You must perform in order to be saved, and that is not grace. So uh, God will be faithful to you even when you are unfaithful to him. He has promised. He has sealed you. That seal is a guarantee. 
but you will be saved as by fire, as it says in 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Um, so, let's see here. Where was I? The traditions. He then says again, brethren, he is addressing them as fellow believers in Christ. And he wants them to be sound in their doctrine and faith. For this reason, he continues with the words, stand fast. To stand is to be sound, fixed, and firm in doctrine. Now, I will stop right there, and I will say that if you do not know the Bible, you cannot stand. stand fast. It's not possible. You cannot stand fast in what you do not know, okay? Now, that's not saying that you're unsaved if you don't stand fast, okay? You will just have a difficult time in your walk with the Lord. But remember this. I like to bring this up from time to time so that you remember. In the American society, and even in much of the world today, we're so saturated with Bibles, and we're so saturated with uh, manuscripts, and we're so saturated with theology on the internet that we think this is just the way it is. And that's not the way it is. For 99%, more than that, of all church believers from the time of Christ until now, and continuing on now in a lot of the world, they don't even have Bibles. All they have is faith in Jesus. They are saved and they will be saved as long as they have that faith. But they don't have doctrine, okay? And that's why it's very important to teach proper doctrine and to uh, get the Bible into people's hands. But it's not something, you know, uh, they, uh, I've used the term before, chained to the pulpit. The bu only Bible that they had, we'll say in 1560 in uh, John Knox, England, was the one at the pulpit. And it cost, you know, thousands of dollars in today's money. Thousands of dollars because they had to be written by hand. They were, you know, very tedious writing out the Bible by hand. And then they didn't just do that, but they would make it special. And they had all those beautiful drawings that they would put into it. If you've ever seen one of those old Bibles that was written by hand, they're, they're beautiful. But they were very, very expensive. And a town may have one Bible. It's like the, you know, synagogues. They have that ark of the Torah, and it's all handwritten. And they may save for many, many years before they get their own actual copy of the Torah because it's that hard to produce one of those things. And some don't have any of their own copy and they will borrow it from another synagogue when they have a special presentation to do. I've seen that here in Sarasota where they do that. So, uh, you know, we think we have everything that we want in the church right now and we do. We've got an abundance of it if we're willing to read it. But remember that the main thing is that uh, you are not... Um, you can only know proper doctrine if you read the Bible. And because we have this blessing of abundance of Bibles, you should be reading them. And we've got them on audio. We've got them on video. I, great stuff. Listen to this. Talk, I, video. Two days ago, I, was, I finished uh, really good. I, I started watching it years ago, and I know I did because it had a little red line on the video, which tells you, and I remember seeing it, but I don't remember why I never got back to it, but it was the book of Daniel. It was very well done. Um, uh, I watched it on um, Tubi. It's free. You, you can watch free movies. There. It was on Tubi. And um, uh, so the book of Daniel was very well done. It followed the Bible closely, and it, I really enjoyed it. And then I'm looking and there's like, they give you all these other options of free stuff that nobody wants to watch because it's Bible stuff. And it said the book of Acts. It says it's three hours long. And I thought, oh, I'd like to watch that. It's going to take me the next six months to watch it, but that's okay. So I clicked on the book of Acts and it is read by 
Dean Jones. You know, Herbie and uh, the Walt Disney guy. Okay, so Dean Jones is Luke. And this, I've never seen this done in a Bible movie before. It's just like watching a Bible movie, okay? You, they've got the guys in their clothes and they're out in the, the desert or they're in the city throwing stones at somebody or whatever. It's just a regular movie. But Dean Jones is narrating it. And so when you're reading Acts and it's written from a first-person perspective, Luke, I, I'm sorry, Dean Jones is his voice. And you hear that. And then when it's uh, the people, like Peter, he'll actually speak, the actor Peter. So it's uh, you. It's all fit together. It must have taken him a long time to do this because they had the sound dub Dean Jones as if he's speaking to Theophilus. Uh, and the best thing that I liked about it is they follow the Bible word for word. And it says Acts 1-1, and it gives you Acts 1-1 down there. And all their words are matching what it says there. And then as soon as Peter starts, and right in the middle of the verse, it goes to Acts 1-2, it says Acts 1-2, and it shows you down there. So you're reading the Bible, you're watching it just like it's a movie, and you're having it narrated by Dean Jones. It, it's marvelously done. And look, my hair's standing up. It's so great. Um, uh, it, it, so Acts just as it's written, but watching it as a movie at the same time. So, um, the one he did with John. What's that? The one he did with John. He did the greatest. That was amazing. That was unreal. He did the book of John. Oh. The book. It, I told everybody in here, watch this. And those that saw it, every person has said that was unbelievable. Yeah. Dean Jones yeah, acted out the entire book all by himself on stage from memory. It was, oh my, look at you, did it again. My hair standing up. It was, it was the best production I have ever seen, ever. It was marvelous. Yeah. And Dean Jones... I don't know what doctrine he had as far as, you know, what church he went to or anything. Please don't send it to me because I'll find out that he was like a, some, some, Buddhist. what, no, he wasn't. He was a saved believer in Christ, but he may have been like in the Calvinism or something. I don't care about that. He just was a great actor. And when he met Jesus, he acted out the part so beautifully. So if you get a chance to watch it, the book of Acts or the uh, gospel of John by uh, Dean Jones, he does a great, great job. Marvelous job. Um, at, like I say, I'm up to X. I want to say nine. Paul just started persecuting, and I think he's going to now see Jesus. It might be eight one instead of nine one because I stopped it right when a chapter ended. I don't remember what I was watching, but um, it's on Tubi as well. Uh, I think it's Tubi. Yeah, it's whatever. It was. I'm sure it's Tubi. Okay. But uh, if you can't find it, let me know, and I'll take a picture of it, and I'll help you find it. Um, uh, very well done. So far, I'm really, really enjoying it. Okay, so um, uh, standing. He said stand. Where was I? Stand fast. That's to be sound, fixed, and firm in doctrine. They were not to waver or to be soon shaken or troubled. Paul's words. When son Johnny come lately, passed along something that was not in accord with sound apostolic teaching, which people do all the time. Uh, to support this, he continues with and hold the traditions of which you were taught. Okay, so there's the traditions which eventually became incorporated into Scripture. Um, before I go on, uh, somebody asked me again today. I got an email, and uh, it, they had like 12 points in the email, and so I had to answer them. And I, so I didn't. I remember that I sent, and I never said hello or goodbye because without Hidako here, I am literally, I, I, I'm right at the end of my time all day. It's amazing how much a wife does that you don't realize <laughs> until she's gone. So the days are really, really long now, but. Um, uh, some of the questions were like, um, 
I've heard this in churches. You have to baptize in living water. It has to be running water. It has to be in a properly whatever mikveh. And uh, is any of that true? And my answer was, no. It's not in the Bible. There is no instruction for baptism. And I said, I'm not going to insert into the word of God anything. It says, be baptized. Does anybody know what the word baptize means? Literal Greek meaning. It means to submerge. That's right. If you submerge, if you sink a ship, you baptize that ship. You submerge that ship. Okay. That's the only thing. And the reason why there was this, uh, the reason why we use the word baptism in English today. Does anybody know why we use the word baptism in Bibles? It's the Greek word, which is correct, but why didn't they translate it instead of transliterate it? Why did that happen? Because they did not want to get into the argument of submerging or child baptism. And so they just skipped the issue completely by just transliterating the word and saying baptism. That it's from the Greek word baptizo, and unless you know what the Greek word means, you wouldn't have any idea what you're supposed to do. Is this okay or is this okay or not? The word means to submerge. So uh, other than that, there is no instruction. It doesn't say you have to go down to a river and be baptized. You don't. You can go out to the ocean and be baptized. You can be baptized in a pool of water. It, there's no restriction. The Bible does not say it. And so I'm not going to answer that question except to say that there's no answer to it. You baptize how you want to baptize, and that's fine. Yeah, the only thing is use the word anything. submerge. What? So if I was just sprinkled. Well, it doesn't do anything. See, the problem with being sprinkled as a child, which I was, okay, uh, the, the problem with that is that it doesn't fit the typology. And typology is really important to God. You find it all through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. The Lord is asking us to do certain things as an outward demonstration. And so a baptism never precedes belief in the Bible. So the first thing you want to do is believe, and the second thing you want to do is say, I want to follow the Lord. And that's why Baptist churches say believer's baptism, is because I now believe in Jesus, and so I want to do what he said. And all it is, is it's a picture of what Christ did. He died, he was buried, he rose again. And he's saying, I want you to openly and publicly follow me in that. And so you go out into the water and the uh, preacher will normally say, do you want to be uh, baptized uh, in the name of Jesus? Yes. Um, then I'm going to dunk you and then I'm going to raise you. And when I dunk you, I'm going to say, buried with Christ in his death, raised to newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that says a pastor has to do it. There's People add all of these things that are not in this word into rites. It doesn't say you have to go through a baptism, you know, catechism, like a lot of churches say, we, we, we got to talk about this. We need, and they, they have like eight month long meetings of whether you should be baptized or not. The question is, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe that he died for your sins? Yes. Would you like to be baptized? Let's go. Okay. I was preaching at Turtle Beach one day and there was a guy out there and he said, uh, uh, at the end of it, I said, you know, if anybody ever wants to be baptized, just let me know. We can go right out there. And this guy, he was like a bunny rabbit. He went, boop, up. He says, I want to be baptized right now. I said, okay. So we walked out there with my clothes on and everything and down he went. And he was from Canada and he's come every year since, except a couple of years during COVID. And, you know, he comes down here and 
he wanted to, last time he was here, he wanted to shoot a gun. He'd never shot a gun in his life. In Canada, you can't even have a gun. So I said, oh, well, let's go down to the gun range. I took him down there and that guy, black mark every single time. It, I, I, it was uncanny how well he shot. I can't even hit the target 15 feet away. And he hit the black mark every single time. Now, admittedly, I first gave him my, uh, my Smith, which is a little snub-nosed revolver, and he didn't do so well with that. And he says, I don't like this. And the, the barrel's this long. You're not going to get any target with that. I gave him the Glock, and it's got a longer barrel, and he hit, with that Glock, he hit every single time black mark. Every time. It was great. Anyway, so uh, there you go. Um, okay, so uh, let's see here. Um, where were we? Uh, yes. Eunuch, the eunuch says, what does hinder me to be baptized? There's water down here. That's, that's what I was thinking when I said that. There's a pool of water. Just go do it. They went down, down into, into the water. The water. That's right. They went down into the water. But it was just a pool of water. It wasn't running water. It wasn't a stream. It wasn't, you know, whatever. Uh, all of that is just legalism. People just want to say, well, you need to do this without any scriptural basis. You want to be baptized? Get baptized. I don't care if it's in a swimming pool. It doesn't make any difference. The idea is to do a public demonstration of your faith. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week. It's because he told us to do it. That's, that's the only reason why we do that. Uh, otherwise, it would be pointless. You know, why are we doing this? Because the Lord said, do this as often as you meet. And there we do. Okay. Um, uh, the traditions, uh, okay, the word tradition here means from close beside. It indicates something passed on from one generation to the next. As the apostles gave them their first instruction in Christ, it was this and this alone that they were to hold fast to. The instructions of the apostles became traditions, and those traditions eventually, the ones that God wanted us to know, are in the Bible. The ones that he didn't care about are not in the Bible. Okay? Um, if you go back and you to the book of... The kings, this guy prophesied, he went down to Egypt, and I'm trying to think of his name right now. I think it's um, Uriah or something, okay? And the Lord, he, he sent this guy down, and uh, eventually you never hear of this guy again. Well, obviously, we don't need to know what the Lord prophesied through that guy because we don't have the book of whatever it is, Uriah or whatever the guy's name was. There are certain things that God wanted to include in the word, and there are certain things that he didn't include because they only pertain to Israel at a, per, a particular time in their history and has no bearing on the word of God. But what we need is right here. And so we don't want to add to it, and we certainly don't want to detract from it. Okay? Um, so that's the traditions. The amazing thing about that, that each and every one of these epistles were written to people that never had a Bible. Absolutely. <laughs> Whenever he says, just as uh, he raised on a third day according to the scriptures, he's not even talking about this. That's right. He Something he had told them earlier along, and he's codifying it in writing. This right. is the gospel that I preach to you. And yet they believe this well as anybody That's right. Today. They heard the word of God, and they accepted it, and they were saved, okay? And so then he writes them to remind them of those things or to clarify things or to take care of problems that have arisen in there. And now that we have that in writing, why would we need something else? Why would we? But that's what every church does. They've got that book of discipline over there or the uh, book of the covenants or all these things that they throw on there. And, and it, all it does is it takes away 
from this. The attention should be on this, not on those things, because those things can be amended. This cannot be amended. This will never be amended. It's the Jewish writings. It's the, it's, it's not the Bible, but it's like the uh, uh, rabbi's writing. Oh, the, the uh, that's uh, Talmud, the which Talmud. is based on the uh, Mishnah and the Gemara. Yeah, and oh, that's that's the Jewish side of things. But I'm talking about just in right. Christian churches. What you I'm know, saying, though, is that, 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 that like they, they have to. Yeah, that's right. It's, to that. it's all like, that well, kind of stuff. This? Yeah, like, you know, so. stick to the Bible and don't worry about all. And you know, now I will admit that it is great to read Bible commentaries because yeah. here are things that I will never think of that somebody has thought of over the past 1,500 years. And so if you read, but if you don't know the Bible in advance, then you will make the mistake of believing him when it may not say what he is saying, okay? Um, I gave an example of that in a sermon either one or two weeks ago where a guy said, well, this is this, and it wasn't at all, and he never bothered to check. Um, uh, who was guilty of that? Uh, Aristotle. Aristotle claimed that women had less teeth than men. All it takes is just counting their teeth. He obviously never did that because he said women have less teeth than men. Now, it may be that women had less teeth after a long life of, you know, the Indian women. I don't know if you've ever seen the Indian women that used to, to uh, when you make the leather soft, there are different, we, we have different processes for it, but there's one Indian tribe, the way that they made the, the leather soft was that the women chewed on the leather. And by the end of their life, they had almost no teeth left at all. So maybe Aristotle had a tribe like that there and he just thought they have less teeth than men. I don't know what, but uh, you know, if you just count the number of teeth, you would know that they have the same number of teeth as men. But anyway, so don't believe people until you've checked what people say. Um, let's see here. Okay, so we did that. The word translated as hold fast means to seize hold of and to put under one's control. That's the next thing he said to do, hold fast. This is what they were to do with the word given to them. Seize it. Get it under your control. Know this word. Apply it to your life. Hold fast to it. Um, so, we, uh, we are to do with the word once delivered to us today. We're to do that. We are to hold fast to it, and we are not to be shaken by every wind of doctrine which passes by. How sad that Paul's words are pretty much completely ignored by countless cults and unsound churches. They don't even open this book. And if they do, you know, they pick it up and they read a psalm at the beginning of it, and then they talk about whatever for the rest. I know, I grew up in a church like that. It this was an afterthought. It's not the, the center of the teaching in the church. It's just an afterthought, okay? I went into, um, uh, some people asked me to preach at a church out in Mayaka, and uh, they were looking for a pastor. And when I got there, it was a Southern Baptist church. So you have to be a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. But anyway, they asked me to fill in that Sunday, and so I did. And um, uh, they said, okay, it's Bible study time. And they pulled out a book, not the Bible, and they started to read from this book. And I'm like, you said it's Bible study time. How are you gonna learn the Bible? This book doesn't, it's talking about just stuff. It wasn't even talking about things related to the Bible for the most part. And I thought, that's not Bible study. Anyway, so, you know, we get so far away from, from what we should be doing. It's just reading this and thinking about it and loving the word that God has given us. But Anyway, um, Jesus he, addressed that. He said absolutely. He said, "You have a wonderful way of, of observing your own 
Traditions. Traditions while ignoring the word, the word of God. God. That's a poor translation. But that's no, that's ex saying. that's exactly the thought that he gave. He, we'll call that Susan Garrett paraphrase. But that's just <laughs> what he said. Okay. So Paul finishes with the words in this verse, whether by word or by our epistle. This is referring to the traditions you were taught, the word of the apostles, those things which are apostolic in nature and which were either in writing or which would be codified in writing by other apostles, uh, they form what we call the Word of God, the Holy Bible. Those are the things that are now in Scripture. And it's all we need. I don't know why people think we need something more. Go onto YouTube any day of the week. Type in Prophecy from the Lord, uh, what's today? 16, uh, 16 November 2023. Somebody will have given a prophecy from the Lord. The Lord said to me today, why do we need that? What, what, do you think that, and people dwell on that kind of stuff. They love that kind of stuff. And, and they, I guarantee you, those people that are watching those type of videos have never picked up and read the Bible through one time. Never. I, I, I would be willing to bet my bottom dollar on that. Okay. Um, uh, so it's just stick with the Bible and don't worry about a word from the Lord because the Lord didn't speak to that person. If that person isn't reading out of the Bible, and the Lord didn't speak to him, stick to the Bible or a commentary which is based on Scripture. Okay, so um, those things which are apostolic in nature, yes, I read that. Okay, once the word was recorded and canonicity was determined, and I get that question a lot, how did we get the books of the Bible? For right now, it was determined, there was a process, and once that process was ended, the word was set. Okay, and that's the problem because in uh, 1546, the Catholic Church decided that they needed to include, after 1500 years, the books of the Apocrypha. And the reason why they did that, the Apocrypha was in the Catholic Bibles already, but it was not considered scripture. And the person that translated the Bible for them, the Latin Vulgate, was anybody? Jerome. Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate of the Bible, the Hebrew and the Greek. He said that this is not canon, and it will be canon over my dead body. So they waited, you know, a thousand years, and they did it over his dead body. Um, the, the reason why they included the Apocrypha in Catholic Bibles is because it justified their unjustifiable practices. Mm. Purgatory, they now have something that will explain purgatory, which is not a church doctrine. It was not an apostolic doctrine. And also, um, it justified indulgences because the Catholic Church made a lot of money off of indulgences, oh. millions and millions of dollars at times when that was real money, okay? And uh, they were able to justify those things because this is canon. So at 1546 at the Council of Trent, they did that. And they also, at the same time, passed canons. These are church doctrine. And I've got them in my computer, and I mention this from time to time, is that I think it's six of their canons would call Paul a heretic. Directly. If you take what Paul says and what they say, if anybody says this doctrine, let him be anathema, meaning he's a heretic. And that would be calling Paul a heretic because he explicitly says those things. One of their canons would call Jesus a heretic. All to justify the unjustifiable and to make a lot of money. So there you go with that. So be careful who you believe, what you believe, and why you believe it. 
but there is a process that was followed for us to determine the canonicity of scripture okay it was handled it took a while it was a process and eventually they determined these books have the power of god they convey the thinking of god and therefore these are the 66 books of the bible and i can assure you that there are so many patterns in this book as it is written and in the form that it's in it is nothing other than the word of god if you've seen those patterns i've i've got some of them down under the pulpit there things that are just so incredible about the Word of God because of the way that it's structured. We do not follow the Hebrew Old Testament structure. We follow the same books as the Hebrew Old Testament, but there starts with Genesis and ends with two Chronicles, not with um, uh, Malachi. Thank you. Okay. They have one book of Samuel instead of two. The Christian canon divided it in two. They have one book of Kings. They have one book of Chronicles, and we've divided them into two. It's the same books, it's just structured differently. And once that happened, and once it was combined with the 27 books of the New Testament to form 66 books, it makes the most incredible patterns that you can imagine. It is the Word of God. It's a lifetime of study, and you will never get to the end of it, ever. It is a marvelous, marvelous Word. So, um, let's see here uh, the traditions you were taught. Once uh, the Word was recorded, and canonicity was determined, the word was set. What we should ask God when we hear someone claim divine inspiration over anything we hear is, shall I accept this, or will I stand fast on your word alone? That's what we need to ask every single time. Will I stand on the word of God, or am I going to accept some? That's why we have a Mormon church today, is because somebody claimed he got a revelation from the Lord, and he was transmitted through golden tablets, the angel Moroni, and uh, now we have the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it? The, the Book of Mormon, the third gospel of Jesus Christ, or whatever. I, I might have said that wrong. And that's why we have a Seventh-day Adventist church, is because Ellen G. White had all of her prophecies, and they said, we're going to follow this woman. And so, uh, are you going to accept something other than the Word of God, or are you just going to stand on the Word of God? I, I, there's nothing that anybody has ever prophesied since the completion of the Bible that has added anything of value to this word. It stands alone and unique, it, 100%. Um, life application. This verse, again, shows us the truth of doctrine, the doctrine of apostolic inspiration. It further implies that when the apostolic age ended, no further re revelation is given for our doctrine and faith. Paul's words show that people should only hold on to what can be confirmed as from this divinely inspired process. It is exactly the reason why we are never to accept prophetic utterances or claims of divine inspiration by anyone else. The church age is literally spattered with false teachers who have claimed divine inspiration, like Joseph Smith, and who continue to do so today, like David Koresh who, you know, the Waco guy, but none of their messages are to be considered authoritative or acceptable, okay? Uh, do we have time for one more? I don't know if we've got 14 minutes and... Fairly long. Uh, well, do we want to do one more or do we want to close? Well, I'll tell you what, let's close early, and the reason why is because next week is... 
Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We're not going to be here. So this will be like a 14-minute a vacation for everybody today. And then next week, I want everybody to have the best Thanksgiving ever. Okay? I. Uh, 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 it's going to be, I, this may be, I tried to think if another one has happened, and I don't think so. I think this may be the first time in 39 years that I'm not with my wife on Thanksgiving. There may have been another one, but I can't. Now, she wasn't there at dinner sometimes because she was a nurse and she had to work or something, but we were always together. But I think this is going to be my first one without her. And uh, that's okay because I am going to, I'm going to have my dinner. And while I'm having my dinner, I'm going to call them and we're going to FaceTime. And I'm going to get to talk to my wife while she's up in New York with that beautiful grandbaby. So uh, uh, I hope that everybody here will have just the most wonderful Thanksgiving. It's my personal favorite day of the year. And for no other reason than it's a day of thanks. And uh, I just, I'm so grateful to the Lord for, you know, we got rain, didn't we? Yeah. Sarasota is 37 inches behind on rain this year. That's, that's what, almost, that's more than three feet. Okay, and uh, I was telling Burke that it's so bad on the key because we got less than anybody else. The rain started inland and moved in all summer long. The key got almost no rain the entire summer. I was walking outside of my house yesterday and my house has cracked on the side because the foundation after 75 years has been fine because it's so low of a water table. I got a crack inside of my house. So we'll hope that it doesn't get any worse because that's gonna be terrible if it does. But um, there are zigzags right up the uh, stones to the... Uh, so, uh, but I'm still thankful that we got rain. I'm just... At, whoa, it's so nice out there. Everything is fresh and green, and the Lord is so good to us. So uh, let's take a moment and thank Him, and then we'll go. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for every good and kind blessing that you bless us with. You're such a wonderful creator, and you give us rain in its due season, and you withhold it for your own sovereign purposes. While all the rest of Florida has got abundant rain, we haven't had any. And maybe that's taught us to rely on you even more. Whatever the reason is, we certainly are thankful for what we did receive, and we're very grateful to you for all the blessings of this past year, and we look forward to whatever you have for us in the year ahead after this Thanksgiving day. And maybe it'll be the coming of Jesus for us. And if not, we'll continue on in our uh, hope and in our uh, anticipation of his coming. But until that day, we just want to praise you for who you are, for your precious word, and above all, for Jesus who is revealed in that word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, let's say goodbye to the folks online here. Go to break. There we go.